When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. There's a tendency for philosophers thinking about the good life to say, well, let's start with the ideal life. Like, that's the target, and we'll get as close as we can. And I think one thing that comes into focus when you deal with difficulty like this is that often the ideal life is just out of reach. There's no point trying to live a pain-free life when you have a chronic pain condition. And there's no point trying to, to do the kinds of things your body or social circumstance just won't permit. So the way of thinking about what a good life would be that you have when you're dealing with difficulty can't be, let's aim for the ideal. It has to be, you have to ask different questions about you know, what's good enough? What, would, what can I hope for in, in this difficult circumstance? That's Kieran Setia. He's a philosopher whose new book, Life is Hard, is a very personal take on what it means to live a good life in the face of adversity. Informed by the thinking of philosophers, ancient and modern, it's much more than a self-help book. It's a moving and witty exploration of the value of facing up to reality as the path to living well. This is great to be talking with you because I've always been interested in philosophy never studied it formally. And I was struck by the comment that was in the margin of one of your papers that you submitted to your professor. It was maybe your thesis. I can't remember. Yes. He, got, yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had very good comments. Then he had this little cautionary suggestion in the margin. Yes, that my views had not been tested in the crucible of direct moral experience, which, which at the time, I, I remember sitting, uh, uh, having coffee with friends and making fun of it. And then, as with many things, when you're 25 years old, approximately 20 years later, you look back and think uh, they really had my number, that there was a way in which <laughs> I, I, I was doing, I was thinking about how to live, which was you know, thinking about ethics in this, in abstraction from my actual life or the lives of people I knew, yeah. And what struck me was, years later, you actually had a chance to apply direct living experience to philosophical concepts, because when you first encountered the chronic pain that you right. felt for, for years now, you still feel it? You're still in chronic pain? Yes, although it fluctuates, so some days are worse than others. And, and to be honest, I mean, one of the main things that I've, I've learned about it 
about how to live is that you can have a pretty good life while something pretty bad is happening. That even though I can't really cure it, life is basically pretty good, even though there's a kind of background hum of pain. Like sleep is the biggest problem, but provided I sleep okay, it's not that bad. But yeah, I, I think part of what was interesting to me about connecting philosophy with my own experience there was the question, why is pain bad? And it seems like a silly question, although philosophers are used to silly questions, because in a way, pain is the paradigm example of something that's bad. Like everyone agrees, you know, what are the bad things in life? Pain. But in fact, my daily pain is not disabling. It's not, it doesn't prevent me from doing things. And yet there is something very difficult about being in this kind of chronic pain condition. And there's, I think, a lot to say about why. I mean, part of it has to do with the way in which it draws your attention to your body and it prevents you from, it makes you inward looking. It prevents you from making contact with other people in the world around mm -hmm. you. Part of it is the temporality. Like when you're in a state of chronic pain, the future is always clouded. You can't see forwards in the way you might want to see forwards to, to a, a kind of what tomorrow will hold. There's always the anxiety that it will get worse. So, so I, I do think there's even just applying philosophy to an experience like that, trying to understand it better, there's a consolation in that and just taking seriously a difficult experience rather than trying to you know, brush it away. Let me go back to the beginning for a second. How did you at first experience this pain? Did you know what it was? Where were you? How did it happen? No, no. So I was I was in a movie theater. I was at the Oaks, which was a movie theater on the outskirts of Pittsburgh where I used to live, probably watching, given the timeline, it was like, you know, one of the Matrix sequels or something. So I was probably in some degree of pain already watching <laughs> watching a terrible movie. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I felt a kind of a stabbing pain and then I needed to pee. And then I basically, the initial symptom was I went, I urinated, but the sensation of tension of needing to urinate just wouldn't go away. Like it was just a constant discomfort. And so I spent that night just lying on the bathroom floor feeling kind of unable to sleep, feeling very freaked out. And then I went to my primary care doctor who said, well, it's probably just a UTI, take some, you know, antibiotics or whatever. Uh, but that didn't help. And then they did do they do more fun and you know studies like cystoscopies where they intubate you and look inside your bladder and they found nothing. I did these urodynamic studies where you, you know, pee into a tube. They couldn't really find anything. And basically it's one of those conditions, and lots of people must be familiar with this, where you keep going to the doctor thinking, well, the next one will figure it out. And then the doctor who finally has it figured out is the one who says, well, I've got a name for the symptom. It's chronic pelvic pain. And no, there isn't any reliable treatment. And no, we don't really understand why this is happening. Uh. And, and as with many chronic conditions, the, the challenge is, is one of thinking, well, okay, how do I live with this? Rather than thinking, you know, if, if I keep scouring the web, will I find the secret cure, you know? <laughs> The title of your book, Life is Hard, sounds like it's tied in in a kind of a major way to this experience because you're reminded every day by the pain how hard life can be. And it can be even worse. It can be, it can be less taxing for some people who can't even take that much of a tax. Yeah. But how did you learn from that? And how is it expressed in the book? I think for me, the pivotal experience, well, here's one way to put it. I think I wanted to write about my experience, 
but I didn't just want to write about my experience. I wanted to use it as an example in a way for this wider issue of how to live a good enough life while dealing with difficulty. It could be pain, it could be it could be Parkinson's, it could be it could be physical disability, it could be loneliness, it could be grief. And for me, I think the pivotal moment was I think if you if you were making a movie of it, it would be it would be the moment when I was sort of really taking in that the the pain wasn't going to go away. And I was very angry and bitter about that. And I remember once just sitting somewhere watching people, strangers walk by and having a sense of stinging envy, thinking, you don't know how good you have it not experiencing pain, being pain-free. And then I, I took a breath and thought, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea what any of these people are going through any more than they know what I'm going through. They, I'm sitting here. They have no idea what I'm experiencing. And they could be going through all kinds of things. They could have lost a loved one. They could be facing injustice in a, in a more profound way than I've ever experienced. They could be depressed. And I think that, for me, is the, the, the key thing, is to leverage one's own acquaintance with difficulty into compassion. I think people oscillate. I mean, people, anyone dealing with difficulty kind of has this tendency to oscillate between self-pity and finding it a source of connection with other people, sort of recognizing the the commonality, the connection of of suffering that we we all have. And that's really where the book comes from, is the idea that that we can use these experiences to connect with other people and that that kind of connection is consoling to us too. So it actually can lead to what philosophers have been debating for centuries, which is what is the good life. Right. I think it, it gives a new perspective on that. I mean, I think what there's a tendency for philosophers thinking about the good life to say, well, let's start with the ideal life. Like, that's the target, and we'll get as close as we can. And I think one thing that comes into focus when you deal with difficulty like this is that often the ideal life is just out of reach. There's no point trying to live a pain-free life when you have a chronic pain condition. And there's no point trying to to do the kinds of things your body or social circumstance just won't permit. So the way of thinking about what a good life would be that you have when you're dealing with difficulty can't be, let's aim for the ideal. It has to be, you have to ask different questions about, you know, what's good enough? What would, what can I hope for in, in this difficult circumstance? Yeah. So, and I think that the, the, there's a, a real continuity between questions about how to live that are, in a way, self-help questions about yourself and questions that are really moral questions because really living well is about living the way you should or trying to live as, as well as you can. And that means treating not just yourself but other people as you should. So I, I think that's a, a kind of way of framing the the problem you face in life that that connects it with these old, deep philosophical questions. Yeah, I think it's interesting that your notion of realizing that the people passing by didn't know what you were going through and you had no idea what they were going through it could be considered the beginning of empathy. No, that's totally right. Right. There's this sort of, I, I think, seeing that continuity between concern for yourself and concern for others, that that there's a pathway from awareness of suffering in your own life and empathy that you can sort of turn from suffering not towards inwardness, but towards connection is, is really important. I think, right, empathy is a, is a good name for that. 
And I remember you saying in the book somewhere that one of the great philosophers, I forget it was Socrates or Aristotle, talked about the importance of friends. Yes. And without friends, life isn't worth living. This is a kind, of, a kind of theme in philosophy, running from Aristotle really gives a lot of attention to friends. This is, he's an you know, ancient Greek philosopher 2,500 years ago, but you, the, the theme of friendship is, is one that philosophers return to. And one thing that I think is really important about it is that we have to, I think, resist the tendency to think of friendship as something very limited, that there's a, a sort of... A, focusing on relationships we have with a small number of people and very different from the kind of relationship we have with strangers. Because there's really a deep continuity in that part of respecting someone, a stranger, just having a kind of moral relationship with them is recognizing that they matter, that their value is significant. And the way someone recognizes that you matter in a close friendship is different. It's more intense. It's more intimate. But it's the same value that's being recognized. Like part of why friendship matters is that without it, it's hard to feel like you matter, that you really count, that anyone really acknowledges your dignity or meaning as a human being. And in a way, when you rec- what you recognize in friendship and what you hope people recognize in you is the same value that everyone has, whether you recognize it or not. So I think there too, there's, there's a the difference between thinking about your own life and thinking about the demands that others place on you is less of a contrast and more of a continuity than than people often think of it as. In a way, you're even saying one of the values of friendship is that you know you're valued. And in a way, you know you're even there. Right. Which reminds me of how you're in a position to enlighten me on this. When did philosophy turn from mainly being about moral experience and questions that are maybe even more fun but unanswerable, like, <laughs> is everything really here or is it just a hallucination? <laughs> uh, I mean, th- those kind of questions come and go. I mean, I, it's true that there was the kind of Socrates really is where, where, the, where the idea that the question, the central question is, how should I live? So pre-Socratic philosophers, so before Plato, even earlier ancient Greece, these guys were metaphysicians. Like they would come along and say things like, hey, my philosophy is everything is made out of water or my philosophy is everything is made out of air. And and then Socrates came along and said, well, really the central question here is how should I live? How should we organize the city? And Plato, who's Socrates' student, sort of picks up both and says, well, it's all tied together. You can't really figure out how to live or how to organize a city unless you also know about the nature of the forms or the, the metaphysics of cosmology or whatever. So they get unified there. And then, you know, there's a kind of long story, but they basically one or other of those perspectives sort of takes priority at different times. And I do think through the Enlightenment, through the 18th century, the more practical applied way of thinking about how should I live gets suppressed in favor of, of theory. And theoretical questions about how to organize society are important. But in a way, the self-help dimension of philosophy becomes a source of embarrassment, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the 18th, 19th century. And nowadays, I think philosophers like me, and, and not just me, are, are kind of pushing back against that embarrassment and saying, you know, maybe we it's not a good idea to leave the whole idea of self-help to the self-help gurus. Like that there's a way in which philosophy has something to contribute to this question about how to live that's of real practical value. But 
there are still philosophers out there asking questions like, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Or how do I know the world is real? So I know if you were worried that they've gone away, they're, they're, still, they're still in universities spending time thinking about those questions. So uh, yeah, it, it's still part of it. Which is allied in my mind with the notion of, is life absurd? Never mind how we should live. Should we, what's, what's the point of living at all? Right, right. That's sort of too, you, you can think of what, you know, when you step back and think with tiny, you know, tiny little apes on this little globe spinning through the cosmos, what is it all about? You have both these metaphysical questions like, why do we even exist? Or do we have souls? Or, you know, why is there anything at all? But then there's also the ethical question, like, how, how should I feel about the fact that we're tiny little mammals on this, you know, this, this tiny planet? Uh, and that's a question that, you know, I think there are religious answers to that question, which give you a, a narrative about how human beings fit into a larger cosmology, because, you know, God has a purpose for us. The really challenging question here is, is there any way to tell a narrative about how human beings fit into the universe in a secular context that can tell us how to feel, that can orient us or make us, as it were, feel that we've we've got a bead on things. We've got to kind of, we can sort of make sense of our place in the universe. And the thought that we can't, that's where absurdity comes in, the sense that it's not that the world is terrible, it's that there really isn't anything to say to make sense of human life. When you talk about whether or not we even exist, that question, mm. my response is, and I'm, I'm curious about what your <laughs> response to my response is, uh -huh. that it's an entertaining question, not much useful beyond being entertaining, because I think the question, in a way, was answered in an old burlesque sketch. My father was in burlesque when I was born, uh -huh. and I spent my early years watching all the great comics, and there was a sketch in which one comic says to the other, I'll bet you $5 you're not here. Uh -huh. <laughs> what are you talking about? Of course I'm here. I'm here. Uh -huh. <laughs> $5. Are you in Pittsburgh? No. Are you in Seattle? No. Well, if you're not in Pittsburgh, you're not in Seattle, you must be someplace else. If you're someplace else, you're not here. Five dollars. Uh -huh. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, there's, there's a great... Um, Philosopher, who, Jewish philosopher who was at Columbia, Sidney Morgenbesser, who, who when, when someone asked, you know, well, why is there something rather than nothing? His response was, if there was nothing, you'd still complain. <laughs> right. When we come back from our break, Kieran Setia explores that eternal question of philosophy, the meaning of life. And he and I compare ideas on the role of hope in a laying despair. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. 
I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kieran Setia. We were talking about the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and I remember thinking when I first read him that his notion of an existential crisis was just not something I could relate to. I felt that Sartre was having fun with despair. Uh (laughs) And when I read it, because I'm not basically a gloomy person, I didn't really take it seriously. I couldn't imagine the experience of nausea when thinking about existence. It didn't make sense. But I came across a couple of existential philosophers, not so well known, who said life has the meaning that you give it. Meaning comes with doing and what's important to you. How do you respond to that? I mean, I think that's, I think there's really something in that. Maybe there are two questions about meaning. One is about having a meaningful life yourself, you know, and that's that's closely related to having a good enough life, living living well enough. And there, I think the meaning does come partly from us in the sense, not I think that you can just uh, invest anything with meaning. You know, the the philosopher John Rawls has this example of someone who spends all day, every day, counting grass on the lawn outside his his house. And the thought is, you know, he might really want to do that, but this is probably not the most meaningful life. It's not something, you know, if you heard that your kids had taken up grass counting and that was the only thing they spent their time doing, you, if, if you're like me, you'd think, maybe I need to have a word with my kids about what they're, you know, what they're, what they're spending their life doing. So I think there are constraints on where you can find meaning, but there's a lot of pluralism. There's like a, a million different ways you could live a meaningful life. And it's kind of up to you to figure out which of those many ways you want to live. And it has to be something that grips you. So in that sense, I think, yes, we to determine the meaning of our lives. I think there's also this question about the meaning of human life as such. Like what, not sort of, do I have a meaningful life or do you have a good enough life? But does human life as a whole, does human history make any sense? And there I think, it's less something that we can individually invest it with, but a question of what kinds of kind of narratives we can collectively tell to make sense of our shared experience. So I, I, the way I think the rubber hits the road here when you think about things like human extinction or you think about climate change or something like the kind of prospect of human history going in a very dark direction I think when you look at that, most of us think, and, and I think rightly respond with kind of horror that the idea that you know, climate change is going to cause terrible harm and there'll be civil war and refugee crisis, we think that would be awful. And it's awful, not even if it doesn't specifically affect me, it's just not how we want human history to go. And there, I think, when you're thinking about humanity as a whole, the kind of meaning we want is one that we can't sort of individually invest it with. It's there's a real question whether you know humans are you know getting it together enough to try and weather this storm in a way that actually you know brings some grace to a difficult situation and those questions like are we actually responding to this with justice or with selfishness with 
cosmopolitanism or kind of shutting down nationalism. There, I think, it's, maybe objective isn't quite the right word, but there's a sense in which the answers are external to us. It's not. It's not in, under. It's not up to us to to decide. It's up to us to try to figure out what would really be a way to to shape human history that we could be okay with. So. I think those two questions sort of split differently. The one about what, what makes my life meaningful and the question of how to feel about human life as a whole. That's where the sort of absurdity kind of comes in, maybe. One of the things I get from your book is the recognition that life is hard, the simple recognition that it's hard. Applied, for instance, to the idea that life ends. Yeah. is beneficial to understand that this is the reality and there's no point in wishing it away. It can give you some relief from it. I think that's that. That for me is really a, a kind of deep, feet, kind of fact about how to orient ourselves. I mean, maybe there's a contrast here that's useful to draw between happiness as a feeling and living well. And often, when you think about self-help, you think, "Well, this is a book, self-help book, or this self-help course, or whatever I'm doing is supposed to help me." to be happy. But happiness is just a matter of how you feel. You could be happy or you could feel happy while being completely disconnected from reality. You know, philosophers like to imagine someone plugged into a simulation. They don't know they're plugged in. They're being fed a course of fake experience. And the course of fake experience is wonderful, lovely, but it's not real. They're not really interacting with anyone or anything but this machine they're plugged into. And again, I think that's not a life you would want for someone you love. This isn't a good way to live. Because a good life is not just about how you feel. It's about dealing with reality as it is. And so I think acknowledging that life is hard is in a way the only way to live well insofar as living well involves realism. It involves dealing with reality as it is. So, And that kind of acknowledgement, it's both, I mean, even acknowledging that life is hard is already in a way consoling, but it's also orienting and that you can't figure out how to deal with the fact that life is hard unless you acknowledge that it's hard. And this is really not about being kind of gloomy. It's about the kind of preconditions of doing anything about the difficulties of life is not uh, ignoring or, or, or lying about them or deceiving yourself about them. There's an anecdote I tell in the book that for me, so it was it, I tell it in the second person, but it was something that happened to me, was was talking to a friend about something difficult they were going through. And I immediately wanted to tell them, it's going to be okay, or give them advice, that here's what to do. And I realized that they were, they were experiencing this, I think rightly, as defensive, that, that I wasn't listening to them. I was pushing it away. I was disavowing what they were going through. And that the acknowledgement that they were going through something hard, like being willing to sit with it, was absolutely crucial. It was it was otherwise a, a kind of failure of human engagement, a failure of friendship. And so that in, is where this sort of recognition that life is hard to me comes in. It's not about, yeah, it's not, I think my general attitude and, and the book as a whole are not depressing. It's more, I mean, I think this is why I love the phrase life is hard, is that it's both frank and plain spoken, but also it's a kind of a thing you say in a, you know, the, your shoulder shrug, like life is hard. Okay. You know, <laughs> what, what are we going to do? And and so it's not, it's a, it's not dwelling in it in a depressing way. It's saying, eh, okay, so what? You know, we've got to figure out a, a way to get through this. 
so if you're being realistic about the fact that life is hard, what role does hope play? Well, I, I, my views about this have shifted a lot. And I, I tell this story in the book that I, I've, I have a kind of deep ambivalence about hope. And I think a lot of this, I think this will resonate with people who have chronic or incurable illnesses, some people in those conditions. Because for me, the experience of having an illness that wasn't really curable was going from doctor to doctor, hoping they would fix it, and uh, finding out again and again that they didn't really know what they were doing and there wasn't a way to fix it. So I became very suspicious of hope. I became very sort of jaded about the idea of hope and, and thought, you know, the key is to, to just stop hoping, just accept it, give up. But I think that, I now think that's sort of a mistake and that the, the shift you need to make in relating to hope that's really enabling and empowering is to switch from the question, hope or despair? You know, should I be hopeful? Should I be despairing? Like climate change often prompts this response in me. I, I read the news and either there's some good news and I'm like, oh, there's hope. Or I read that there's, you know, some legislation failed or there are storms in California. And I think, okay, despair. But actually it's not the right question. The question is never is hope good or bad, or should I hope or not? It's always, what should I hope for? There's always, the question, it, it can always be answered by finding something that is realistic to direct your hope towards. So I think the virtue of, of hoping well is closely connected to realism. It's about figuring out, well, what, what can we do? And then trying to do that. And when I look back on my experience, the, the experience that at the time I thought of as giving up hope about chronic pain, I wasn't really giving up hope. I was figuring out what to hope for. What I was thinking was, well, what to hope for is that I can find a way to have a good enough life while living with this. So I hadn't given up. I just sort of recalibrated. And and that, I think, is is how to how, how hope sort of intersects with the question of, of life's difficulties and the realism of acknowledging them. And part of that is being realistic about what's possible, but also not not kidding yourself out of fear it, to deny what's possible. Sometimes you have to hold out for possibility. It sounds a little bit to me like you're saying what, what I feel about hope, which is it's a good thing. It's an entertaining thing. It gets you by. It allays despair a little bit. But you don't have to put all your eggs in the basket of hope. I remember a priest once, I heard a priest say, and he was clearly a believer, Pray as if it all depended on God, and act as if it all depended on you. Yes, yeah, yeah. And you could you could put hope in that same slot. Well, I think that definitely fits with something I, I do think about hope that I, I, which is that hope can't be the end. Like if you just hope and you stop there, then you're being passive. You're just waiting for something to happen. But even in the best case, hope is a preliminary to doing something, to actually try, trying to make a difference to change your life or to change other people's lives. And so one of the risks of hope is that it will, it, the, the good feeling of hope will will sort of be a substitute for action. And yeah, that is not a, that, that's a kind of misuse of hope, I think. So what happened to you? Was, was it a similar situation for you when you had an early midlife crisis were you facing these same questions? I mean, I think the questions overlap quite a bit. I think that a lot of what was going on with me then was about something that I talk about in, in Life is Hard in connection with failure, which is being very project-driven. So 
I think I was someone who, by external standards, was successful. And yet, like a lot of people who are, by external standards, successful, I did not feel good about it. I didn't feel happy about it. And that's what I was realizing sort of mid-career. I got tenure, I got a promotion. I was, I, I sort of made it in some in a career where I spent 20 years trying to do this and my dreams had come true. And I suddenly realized, yep, I wasn't happy. Even though I thought, well, this is still worth doing, right? And so I think for me, what was going on there had to do with an overinvestment in achievement. And in particular, in in like the problem with projects is when you're trying to achieve something, you're always aiming at something in the future. So right now you're frustrated. You don't have it yet. But if you're thinking about achievement, then the moment you've done the thing, well, it's done now. Uh, what next? And even worse than that, when you're trying to like get a promotion at work or write a book or make a movie, if that's what you're focused on, you're trying to take this thing that's meaningful and finish it. It's like you're taking something important and saying, well, let me destroy that important thing and get it out of my life. And I think I was that was the orientation that I think really left me with this sense of emptiness. So for me, the, the shift there that was really helpful was a shift that I think a lot of people make at some point in their lives to detaching a bit from the outcomes of the projects they're engaging in or or achievement and trying to value the process of what I was doing. Like all that time I was teaching philosophy and thinking about philosophy. And that's what really mattered. The, the kind of number of lines on the professor's CV is really a distraction from what fundamentally matters, which is to be engaging with these difficult questions and engaging with them with other people. So that I think that's a shift a lot of people can make when they when they and should make when they feel this this sense of of emptiness. And you know, it's connected with the way in which we torture ourselves with a sense of being a, a failure or dream of being a success. Where we've sort of defined our life in terms of a project that we're trying to complete rather than thinking of living as this ongoing thing that really matters that that isn't about completing anything it isn't about you know the in a way when you when you live your life there's no eventually it ends but it doesn't end with you with some you know you win, you don't win or lose at the end you've just lived and and you have to the, the process of living has to be enough of a source of meaning to to make it worthwhile sounds a little like you're saying if the thing you're doing starts to lose its freshness, lose its taste, that you need to look at it from a fresh direction, re-see re it, get into the doing of it all over again. I think that's, that's, for a lot of people, I think that's right. Certainly for me, was was often you get into something for the love of it and you love the process. But then as it gets professionalized or as the daily grind builds up, your love for just engaging in, you know, in parenting or, you know, doing philosophy or or writing or taking care of people in a hospital gets structured by all the particular steps you've got to get through. And mm. all those little projects start to become the focus rather than the, what really mattered, which was, which was this sort of process of engagement. And so, yeah, I think realizing you've been caught in that trap and stepping back and sort of reminding yourself of what actually matters about what you're doing is a is a kind of key reshaping that a lot of people kind of benefit from and certainly for me that was that was crucial to not 
burning out basically and feeling like I, I'd sort of that this whole infatuation had run its course, which it really hadn't. I mean, I love philosophy. I didn't want to stop. I just felt like I'd got to the point where I was just checking off boxes rather mm. than really, really uh, appreciating the the engagement with with these questions. That was the whole reason I got into it. Well, you've got me connected to our conversation in a very fresh way, and I I have to interrupt that with the uh, structure part of it to say that we haven't got more time to talk today, but I've really loved talking with you in this conversation. But we always end our show with seven quick questions. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, well, let's go with I really wish I understood why there was something rather than nothing. Let's go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> We're back where we started. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's in my head now, so now, now I'm really bothered by it. So. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I think asking them why they think what they think. Mm. So trying to start from their point of view is a good way to begin to disagree with someone. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, my. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked me? I will tell you, when I was doing pelvic floor therapy, which didn't really work, one of the questions was, do you ever feel like your internal organs are falling out of your body through your anus? And I thought, <laughs> I, that, that's an unusual question. And every once in a while, someone must say, I, that is exactly how I feel. <laughs> I yes, wonder, but, but that how wasn't me. many people say yes to that? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's got to be a, a good enough question to ask that the pelvic floor therapists have it in their top three questions. So, you know. I, I can understand falling out of your nose, but I, this yeah. <laughs> is very strange. Yeah, so uh, that that was unusual. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh my, I'm not sure I know how to stop compulsive talkers. I'm pretty bad at that. Usually, I say I need another drink and just try and get, get away, <laughs> get away at the cocktail party and find someone else. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? That's a great question. I I think this is a bit of a abstract answer. I wish I could be more specific, but I feel like the key to starting a conversation that's genuine is being vulnerable, so telling them something about you that actually seems real in order to hope that they'll reciprocate. I think it's easier to do that than to try and make them be be confessional. Uh, so may, maybe that's that's the, uh, the, the first step. Good. Next to last, what gives you confidence? Oh, my family, really. I mean, my, my wife and my kid are the people, every time I'm filled with, with doubt, I go and ask them to tell me, <laughs> I go and ask them uh, what I should do, and they're, they're very supportive. Okay, the last question. What book changed your life? Oh, so many books have changed my life in so many ways. I The book that I go back to most often is a book by the novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch called The Sovereignty of Good, that is short. And in a way, anyone could read it. It's a little bit, I, I'm 50-50 on recommending it. Half of the people I recommend it to say, like you, I found this book incredible. Half of them say, what on earth was she talking about? So I, I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone, but it's it's the rare philosophy book that I go back to when I'm feeling down and it makes me feel inspired again. That sounds like it's possibly the whole point of philosophy. 
If you're feeling down, read this. I, I wish more philosophers took that to heart, yeah. Well, I've certainly enjoyed your version of that. It's, been, it's made me feel better already. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kieran Setia is professor of linguistics and philosophy at MIT. The book we talked about is Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. His previous book, which we touched on toward the end of our conversation, is equally witty and enlightening. It's called Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Heaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with writer, director, and producer Judd Apatow. He's a multiple Emmy Award winner for TV shows like Freaks and Geeks and Girls, and his movies include The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and The King of Staten Island. I think on every project, when you're working with someone that really turns you on creatively, where suddenly you light up, that's the most exciting thing. I mean, I don't want to be the one master of the project and everything is my idea and I'm a control freak. I'm so happy when someone tops my joke or has a better idea for a scene. I'm thrilled when it's not my idea. I, I don't care. I feel like I'm just orchestrating a collaboration to get to the best piece of work. Judd Apatow, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>